You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Former Texas Congressman Will Hurd joins the Post to discuss the national security threats posed by artificial intelligence, the immigration crisis at the border, and the future of the Republican Party. Let's listen. Good morning. I'm Karen Tumulty. I'm a columnist here at the Washington Post, and I want to thank you this morning for joining us on Washington Post Live, where our guest is former Texas Congressman Will Hurd. As we noted in the uh, opening video, he has a fascinating background for a congressman, uh, including being an undercover CIA officer for part of his career. He also represented what for my money was one of the most fascinating congressional districts in the country. And not just because it includes part of my hometown, San Antonio, but also it is an absolutely vast swath of Texas that includes a third of the US-Mexico border. So welcome, former Congressman Hurd. Hey, Karen, it's great to be with you. And, and just FYI, um, Fiesta is coming to San Antonio this summer, so we, we got to get you back down. Oh, man, in-person Fiesta. There, I, You've got me. Uh, anyway, um, I wanted to ask you about something that is happening tomorrow in the House and that is likely to, to uh, dominate the news this week, and that is that the House is going to debate and vote upon a proposal to establish an independent commission to investigate the violent events in the Capitol of January 6th. The politics around this have gotten really, really ugly. Can you talk a little bit about that and really what you think is on the line with this uh, debate and this vote tomorrow? Look, what happened on January 6th uh, needs to be investigated, understand what led to that, understand the aftermath of it, um, how you know rhetoric um, had contributed uh, to this insurrection, and then why was the uh, appropriate forces not prepared uh, for something like this to happen? It wasn't like it was a secret that a lot of people were going to be amassing on, on January 6th. And how come the tactics, techniques, and procedures of those involved um, uh, fell down? I, one of the reasons that I, I think members of Congress should be focused on this is for their staff. Right? You, had, you had young men and women who from you know, their town thought they were coming to Washington, D.C. to help their hometown congressperson. And there, a lot of them were scared and worried and, and, and be, having to hide in their office and not know what was potentially going to happen. Um, it's also, for, for me, and that is a, what happened on January 6th is, is an indication of this, of this truth decay that we're seeing happening uh, across the country. And you know, when, I, when I joined the CIA back in, in October 2000, um, I was in the CIA when 9-11 when happened. And, and if, if Islamic extremism was the existential crisis of the day in those in those early 2000s? I, I think this this perpetuation um, and this truth decay that is happening uh, across and and being exacerbated uh, by social media is an existential crisis um, that we have right now. And I think a, a bipartisan, a, you know, equal Republicans and Democrats of thoughtful people uh, to investigate this and hopefully take some of, of the politics out of this um, is, is going to be important. 
truth decay is an interesting phrase. Um, you know, Nancy Pelosi, the speaker, had, though, has made the some of the concessions that Republicans asked for. The membership of the commission is going to be evenly balanced between Democrats and Republicans. It will not be able to issue subpoenas without a, some bipartisan support. Um, but Republicans are saying that this investigation should open up into, you know, Black Lives Matter protests and, and all sorts of, of other things. I mean, is there is that a legitimate argument in, in your mind? I think to be effective, this should be narrow. It should it should focus on what happened at the Capitol. It was an insurrection in our Capitol, and we should be focused on that and elements that led up to that. And and so if there's other things that that pop up, then maybe explore. I, I think ultimately this is going to pass by the House of Representatives. Uh, the question is what happens on the Senate side and and whether or not the members of the Senate. Uh, you have the 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 60 votes in, in order to get this done. Um, I don't know what the whip count is over there, but but I would be in favor of something that's narrow and focus on those those efforts um, because that was the the significant issue. We all remember, you know, to me that image. There was two praying close police officers with with their guns drawn, and there was a a, a member that had broken off a leg of a of a chair. Um, and people were banging on the doors of, of the Capitol, a place that you know I spent time. Um, to me, that just shows that the seriousness of this, and we got to ensure this doesn't happen in, in the future. And we got to also ensure. Uh, I think there's a, an element of protecting individual members and their staff in being able to to do their work um, for for the people of this country. Well, what do you think, though, of the fact that some of your own former Republican colleagues are saying? You know, this was just an ordinary day of tourism at the Capitol, that, that it wasn't violent, that it wasn't an insurrection. What's going on here? Well, I think, I think that's crazy. Anybody who thinks that it was a, a normal day, um, you know, is the, maybe they weren't there. They, they weren't seeing the images I was seeing. They haven't talked to the folks uh, that were there. And, and so, look, one of the problems here is those that want to downplay the, the significance of January 6, especially Republicans that are downplaying it, is preventing um, the, the ability of the Republican Party to talk about the issues of the day, right? If, if you can't get beyond this, then you're going to have a, a difficult time trying uh, to, to be a party of, of ideas and, and, and rather than a, a party of, of personalities. And, and that's something the, the current Republican Party needs to be able to get away from. And, and it starts with folks accepting that the election was lost in, in, in 2020, that it, it, wasn't, it wasn't stolen. Um, we also can't support conspiracy theories, um, whether it's QAnon or that the election was stolen. And that the party has to make sure that they're, they're, it's being reflective and looks like the, the rest of America. And the way we do that is by being a party based on values. And sometimes we've, we've gotten away uh, from what those values should be. And so this continued focus, and, and I think to get beyond these conversations, you need an independent, um, uh, you need an independent commission uh, to look at the, the steps of January 6. Well, a lot of the work that you are doing now is uh, look plays right to your background. It looks at sort of the intersection of of national security and technology. And you have made the argument 
many times in the past that our corrosive political culture in this country also impairs our ability to protect ourselves. So I would like to, to read you a question from one of our viewers, James Moore from Washington, D.C., who asks, as divided as the Congress is right now, will it be able to come together to defend the country against Russia, China, and the threat to America's cybersecurity? The short answer, James, and, and thanks for that question, because it's a great question, something uh, really I've been talking about for, for years. The short answer is yes. Um, the, the threat of, there, there are still two bipartisan issues in Washington, D.C., and that's the threat of the Chinese government. And it's, it's uh, the need to, you know, to, to defend ourselves against cyber threats. And, and, and I want to make it clear, I always talk about the Chinese government. Uh, the beef is not with the Chinese people. Uh, the beef is obviously not with, with Chinese Americans. The amount of hate that our uh, Chinese, uh, Asian American um, brothers and sisters here in this country are facing the hate crimes um, is just unacceptable. But we should be clear, it's the Chinese government. They are a peer. Their, their economy is going to be larger than the United States economy in, in a couple of years. They have, you know, they, I think this year is when the amount of research they were putting into advanced technologies surpassed our research. I would say that that number of pure dollar equivalent is, is not indicative. If you look at the man hours and woman hours of research, the Chinese probably surpassed us a year's ago. And so, so we have some serious challenges. And the Chinese government has made it very clear. They are trying to surpass the United States of America uh, as a leader in, in this country. And they're going to do it by being the global leader in advanced technologies like 5G, AI, quantum computing space. All these things are, 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 are interconnected. And if they have a larger economy, if, if they are able to drive the development of some of these of, of some of these tools, it's going to be based on their values. And they've already shown us what they value. Uh, they showed how they're using facial recognition and technology um, to basically put their ethnic minorities in uh, the, the Uyghurs in internment camps and, 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 and commit genocide. Uh, we know that they're going to try to export uh, that kind of technology uh, to other authoritarian regimes. And so the United States and our allies need to be driving the conversations on these technologies and how we use them in an ethical way. Um, you know, I always say we, we got to take advantage of technology before it takes advantage of us. And we have to get the ethics and the proper use of these tools because it is coming. The disruption is, is going to be here. And, and, and we got to be ready for that. So that means we have to, we have to educate our kids and being able to operate in an environment um, and, and, and to pursue jobs that don't exist today. We have to help current workers uh, be able to transition uh, to this new world. We know AI, artificial intelligence, is going to be able to produce code. So this isn't only going to impact, you know, a lot of times people talk about AI impacting uh, blue-collar jobs. It's going to impact white-collar jobs as, as well, too. And we can be ready and we can take advantage of this. And this technology is going to be able to do things like uh, help us produce more crops with less water, using less land. So we're going to be able to feed more people. We're going to be able to detect um, you know, diseases before um, and, and to, to get people that, that live, live healthier and safer lives. And so this, this, these tools are going to be great things that we need to be able to harness 
but we have to do it the right way. And we are in a new Cold War with the Chinese government, period, in the story. This new Cold War is going to be different. The Chinese, uh, the, the Russians, last time we were in the, the, uh, a Cold War, uh, the USSR was nowhere near the size of, 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 of what China is today. Um, our, our, our economies were nowhere near um, interconnected. Um, the way they, the way, the way the U.S. And, and the Chinese government is. So we have to get to a point where we can outcompete. We're going to always be able to out innovate, and that means we got to continue to have good schools. Um, we have we have income inequality in the United States of America because we have education inequality. So we got to make sure that our our schools are are producing you know better students. We got to make sure that we're using tools like Pell Grant uh, to allow uh, workers to get you know, coding and not have to just be for a, a four-year institution. These are some of the conversations that we should be talking about in order to prepare uh, for the, this, this new Cold War, rather than having some of the debates that we're, we're having uh, on, and, on issues in Washington, D.C. So, James, sorry, I went on a little rant, uh, but it, it's, it's a great question, and it's an important issue, and, and, and I think we can, we can get there, and we must. Well, you mentioned the former Soviet Union. Um, we found out last week with the hacking of a colonial pipeline that the, the former Soviet Union is not exactly entirely in our rearview mirror here. Could you talk a little bit about what happened last week, the mm. panics that it created across this country and and what is your takeaway from that about the future sure karen it's you know let, let me a couple of events leading up to the colonial pipeline is important to understand and, and have some context uh, to to know what the the russians are, are trying to do um you know a lot of national security practitioners uh, talk about black swan events you know this a black swan is something that you know is going to have a, a catastrophic impact but the likelihood of it happening is, is very low um in my 20 years associated and being involved with the national security committee the thing i've learned about black swans is the only thing they do is actually happen and so we have to be prepared for those events uh, back in the 2000s um in from a you know cybersecurity practitioners national security practitioners never thought that oh a country can't you know impact a, a grid of a country or it can't um, use uh, cybersecurity or hacking tools um, to impact society. Well, the Russians did this uh, to the Estonians in in like 2007. Um, there was a there was a a protest over the moving of a statue in Tallinn, which is the the capital of Estonia, and the Russians used this as an opportunity to shut down all of Estonian society. Uh, banks couldn't issue money, uh, the government couldn't cut checks, um, their, their telecommunication infrastructure were, was paralyzed. It was the example of the first kind of nation-state attack on a country. The Estonians, who were right next to the Russians um, uh, from a physical proximity sense, uh, made a decision then and there that they're going to become the most technologically advanced and um, an e-government. And every service you can get now in Estonia um, can be done uh, can be done online. They'll be able to protect themselves um, from from the Russians. Now, uh, their population is about the size of, of our hometown of, of San Antonio. But we had that case. Then we had a case where the the Russians, before invading uh, Ukraine, uh, they shut off uh, off their power. 
uh, it was a use and, and what was the response to that? There were some sanctions by, by the governments. This is like in the 2014 uh, time period. And then we look at what's happening with the colonial pipeline, ultimately a ransomware attack where um, you know, hacktivists uh, were, were able to stop operations of, of, this, of this pipeline company that was providing about 45% of the energy to, to the East Coast. So there's a lot of questions in there in, in about why were some of these critical systems um, being able to be accessed uh, from uh, online? Um, these are that's that's a that's a best practice no no um, in in this industry. How can the federal government do a better job of working with critical infrastructure providers uh, like folks within within the energy sector? I'm also in the telecommunications sector and in our financial services. So it showed that there you know a lot of times people think of, of cyber attacks as someone trying to steal your credit card and steal money out of your bank. Uh, but there's these broader questions of can these tools and can, can, can these attacks be used for, for other operations? And, and a lot of that is shut down um, activities. We saw an event two months ago, we, the world, where it looks like the, Rush, the, the, excuse me, the Chinese government turned off the power in Mumbai. This is um, one of the, the large cities in India. Uh, China and India were having a, a, a skirmish on their border in and around Tibet. And in order to prove that they were able to do a lot, could potentially do a lot of damage to the Indians, it looks like uh, the Chinese uh, shut off the grid. That should, should freak us all out, right? And, and using cyber tools as, as, a, as you know, coercion, we've now seen, we've seen the Russians been perfecting this. We've seen the Chinese uh, use this in, in um, use this now. And so this is a tool, this is a tactic that we have to be, be prepared for, and we have to make sure that we're hardening our digital infrastructure. And this, this is gonna be required a collaboration between the public sector and the private sector in order to get these things done. It's gonna require us uh, to have a, a workforce um, that's prepared for this, and it's gonna require folks to understand what this threat is. And so, you know, it, it is, it is we, we've also need to rethink, everybody says, oh, when it comes to these critical infra infrastructure, uh, that there's redundancy in in the in the system. Well, we saw in the colonial pipeline attack that that redundancy wasn't as good as what we expected. We saw this happen in in my home state of, of Texas uh, with the 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 winter storm and how uh, so much uh, power got taken offline and and crazy prices. It shows the, the lack of resiliency of our grid in Texas. And these are all important questions you know, it's in order for us to, to deal with because it may not be that the Russians or the Chinese um, do some kind of cyber attack in our country and because they wanna invade us. They may do it to cause, cause drama to prevent us from responding to something somewhere else. Um, you know, if, the, if, the, if the Russians were gonna try to do something and go further into Ukraine, would they create drama here in the United States and get us tied up? Or if the Chinese were going to go into Taiwan, uh, do you do these things and get us caught up with, with our own problems so that we can't respond? Uh, these are some of the things that our folks in the national security community need to be prepared for. Well, first of all, there are reports, though, that the Colonial paid ransom to the ransomware operators. Uh, but also, is this the kind of thing that a bunch of sort of individual hacktivists overseas could have carried out 
without the Russian government knowing about it or possibly even sanctioning it? Um, so, so could, yes, uh, when it comes to cyber attacks, um, attribution matters, right? You need to be able to connect um, these, uh, these activities to whether it was sanctioned by the government. You may not be able to say it was this person who was sitting at the keyboard uh, doing this thing. Um, you may not be able to get that level of attribution. And so what the national security community is looking at is you look at some of the infrastructure that the bad guys are, were using to do this. Um, and so you sometimes know that certain IP addresses have been used for attacks uh, by, by certain groups before. So you kind of know that that infrastructure is part of, of, of you know, APT27, right? APT means Advanced Persistent Threat. These are some of the names you have for, 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 some, for, for some of these hacking groups. So you, so you can maybe make attribution doing that. Um, getting a, you know, a, a conversation between Vladimir Putin and somebody in the, in the SVR or the GRU to say, get those hackers to, to do this thing as a test, uh, trying to get that level of intelligence would, would be difficult, but this is something the intelligence community is working on to understand, was this just a, a hacktivist group um, that was operating to make money or was it done in some way uh, to, to hide the hand of the Russians to see whether this kind of attack was, uh, was possible? So we need to understand that in order to figure out what a, a appropriate response uh, would be to the folks that are um, that are perpetuating these kinds of crimes. Well, another thing I'd like to to get to to talk to you about is the situation on the border. You know, something you know so much more about than than just about anyone else. Um, the number of people who are arriving at the border has just grown exponentially. The Biden administration has been reluctant to use the word crisis around it, but the figures are, you know, they tell a story. What do you think is happening down there? And should the Biden administration have expected this and been perhaps better prepared for what's going on? Uh, the Biden administration should have been prepared. They should have expected this because this problem was ongoing and, and bubbling up uh, while the, the transition process was happening. Uh, this is not, this is something that we saw happen in, in 2016, 2014, before that. Um, this is not new. And, and so while part of this crisis is because uh, previous administrations and, and previous folks didn't solve the, the problem. Um, this is something that could have been expected. I think some of the loose rhetoric uh, that that was, you know, not being clear that illegal immigration is wrong, and uh, not being so clear on that actually brought more people thinking, "Hey, um, the doors are going to be open." And 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 guess what? This actually hurts um, the the folks that have legitimate asylum claims because the system is is ultimately being overrun. A uh, one positive step that the, the administration did was um, to appoint a, a special representative to the Northern Triangle. This is something that I've been calling for uh, for years um, in order to coordinate activities and efforts uh, within the Northern Triangle, Guatemala, El Salvador, and, and, and Honduras. And you know, the, the, what, what needs to happen is we got to address legal immigration 
and stop using legal immigration as a political bludgeon uh, during campaigns. We should be able to streamline legal immigration. If Texas needs a certain category of workers, we should be able to bring them in. If Florida uh, needs a different category for a certain month, we should be able to do that. Uh, we should be able to have a, a guest worker program because um, you know immigration is important um, to our economy. It's, it's important um, to our future. We should sort out DACA. Uh, that should be an easy one. Even Republican primary voters believe that the, the young men and women that have been brought to the United States through no fault of their own um, are contributing to our, our culture and our economy, and they should have a permanent uh, legal, legal status in the United States. We also need to address the root causes, and that's violence, lack of economic opportunity, and extreme poverty in those three countries of, of the Northern Triangle. We need a version of the Marshall Plan. You know, the Marshall Plan was successful after World War II because it was a partnership between the United States and the European countries we were trying to help. Those European countries outlined, you know, here are some of the needs um, that we need in order to bring in more food, to stop starvation, in order to, to regrow our economies back to a pre-World War II levels. That's the kind of level of conversation and investment that needs to happen in the Northern Triangle to, in, in order to make those, those economies function. We need to help them uh, further digitalize. Um, you know, having a, a better digital economy uh, prevents the kind of corruption that we're seeing. Uh, a lot of times people, when they think of corruption, they think of some politician having a big old bag of money, you know, making and getting a bag of money in order to do something that benefits somebody else or to not do something that would hurt uh, somebody else. But a lot of times what corruption in the Northern Triangle, how, how that is resolved is that if you want to, if you're an entrepreneur and you need a building permit, you have to pay a bribe in order to get that public service that you're supposed to be able to get. If you're a business that's importing or exporting goods, uh, you have to pay a bribe uh, to, to that customs official uh, to move that product uh, back and forth. If you're, a if you're a citizen and you're downtown in one of these places and you're lost and you go to a cop and you want to ask them for, for directions, uh, you got to pay a bribe. And then if you can't get a, a police officer to give you directions, you're not going to be able to stop a crime or prevent a murder from happening. And so these are some of the endemic problems that we see in those countries that is causing this push factor. Those aren't going to get solved overnight. There's been a number of uh, um, President Bush, George W. Bush had created the Millennium Challenge Corporation in order to address some of these long-term plans. Um, successive administrations had a number of plans for the Northern Triangle. We need to get all of these things together. We need to get the uh, academia and the philanthropic groups that are operating in these countries come together and come up with one plan for the entire region that goes for 10 years and say, this is what we're going to ultimately execute on. That's a level of coordination we need to do. And guess what? All those things I just described is cheaper than to deal with the problem when it gets to our border. Another thing that we need to do is we need to treat drug trafficking organizations and these, and these human smugglers you know, we need to use better intelligence to stop them and dismantle the infrastructure that they're using in order to move these, you know, the volumes of people here. Um, you know, they're taking advantage of, of, of families and, and taking their money and moving them to the United States or trying to move them to the United States. And, and that's something that we need, to we need to improve the intelligence collection and we need to improve the cooperation with folks in order to stop that. Well, Congressman, we only have a couple of minutes left, but I do want to ask you um, a, couple, a couple of things about you. You've got a book in the works, which uh, from what I've read about it, sounds like it's 
it's sort of a memoir, but it also sort of points the way to the future for the Republican Party. So I'd like to ask you about that and also whether there's any possibility you might run for office again. Sure. Uh, so the, the the process of writing the book has 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 been fun, and it really is. You know, how do we address some of these generational defining challenges uh, that we that we find ourselves in? And, and part of that is is making sure we have a GOP that looks like America. It's making sure we have national leaders uh, that are focused on uh, the real issue that we're ready uh, to take advantage of technology before it takes advantage of us. And and I tell stories from my time. In, in the CIA and, and in Congress and in business on how I came to and, and saw and, and, and some of my opinions um, have, have changed. So it's been it's been a fun process. I'm still writing it and when those details get out. And, and look, if I have the opportunity to, to serve my country again, I'll evaluate it. Um, uh, right now, you know, I'm, I'm enjoying, you know, the last six years when I was in Congress, it was great talking about technology in a policy setting. Um, it's been great talking about policy in a technology setting now and to really get my hands dirty and work with some some folks that are working on and trying to solve some of these some of these generational finding challenges. So if the opportunity comes, I'll evaluate it. Uh, but in the meantime, um, I'm enjoying uh, working on technology, national security and public policy. Well, again, we want to thank you so much, Congressman Hurd, for, for joining us today and, and spending some time with us here at Washington Post Live. And we will Look forward to hearing more from you in the near future. Thanks, Karen. Great to talk to you. And thank you as well for being with us here this morning in Washington Post Live. We have some terrific programming coming up. We will, at noon, we have, have a special program on diversity in the workplace. And then this afternoon at two o'clock, my colleague Carol Linick will be talking about her new book, about the Secret Service. It is out today and it is already on top of the bestseller lists. So thank you so much for joining us and check in with WashingtonPostLive.com to see what we have coming up. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.